Good evening, guys. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce my father, Professor Chandra Griffiths, who is the chair of political theory at LSC, and he's well known for his paper, Are There Any Cultural Rights in Particular? And his book, Good Life Intelligence. Thanks, Sam. First time I've been introduced by a member of the family, something that wasn't a wedding or a service of some kind. It's very, it was very weird. Okay, so the title I gave uh, the society a few months ago when I agreed to speak was Libertarianism, a Skeptical Critique and a Marxist Reconstruction. And I looked at the title again when I came to prepare this talk, I wondered what I was thinking at the time because it's a bit obscure to me now. Um, what I want to do is to present a different kind of view of libertarianism and it's taking some inspiration from uh, sources that libertarians don't normally turn to. Karl Marx is one and Jean-Jacques Rousseau is another. Uh, libertarians typically start their reflections with, with John Locke um, they might um, turn to Robert Nozick if they can't be bothered to read that far back into history. Um, but they're not going to turn to Rousseau. They're not going to turn to Marx. And I think this is, if not a mistake, at least unfortunate, because I think these thinkers have a lot to offer. In fact, in some ways, I think they have more to offer than someone like Locke does. It's maybe a slight exaggeration, but I, th I think they have a lot to offer. And so what I want to do is I want to focus on that. And part of the reason for doing this, I guess, is a kind of dissatisfaction I have with the place of libertarianism in contemporary political theory. Most libertarian discussions, and especially discussions of libertarianism by non-libertarians, seem to begin with Nozick uh, and then to proceed pretty quickly to a critique of Nozick, which often is actually quite effective. And I think it misses really the the radical nature of libertarianism because it turns out to be a case of people on roughly the liberal left or the socialist left criticizing someone who could be viewed almost as a kind of conservative or as a defender of the status quo. Uh, and I think of libertarianism as actually a very radical philosophy, a philosophy that's very much uh, against the status quo, very, very skeptical about uh, existing institution and existing arrangements, and are skeptical about them because they are institutions that favor the, the rich over the poor, the, the connected over uh, those who are not so well connected, prefer or favor those who are in power over those who are powerless. Uh, but you wouldn't get that sense if you read Nozick, and you wouldn't get that sense if you read Ayn Rand, and you wouldn't get sense if you read most critiques of libertarianism by people as I said, from the socialist left or um, the liberal left. So I want to try to present a slightly different take on libertarianism. I don't want to give you the impression that libertarians haven't thought about the things that I want to say today. Uh, they have. But this part of the libertarian tradition, in a way, is pretty much unrepresented in academic political theory. And I want to bring it back into uh, discussion a bit. And I'm going to do that by talking about thinkers, as I said, that libertarians don't normally talk about. So let me s start by saying a little bit about the, the, st the standard bearers of libertarianism in the academic literature. The most obvious one is, uh, is Robert Nozick. One thing that's often forgotten about Nozick is that he really begins Anarchy, State, and Utopia with a critique of anarchism. 
In fact, he begins Anarchy State in Utopia with a critique of libertarian anarchism. He starts by attempting to justify the state. And this, I think, to start with, tells you something about why it is that libertarianism looks like a kind of conservative uh, doctrine. Because he's starting with a kind of view which is looking to defend the most fundamental institution uh, of modern society, the state. He's giving you an explanation of why the state is legitimate. He then will go on to say why only a minimal state is legitimate, but he's starting with an attempt to justify the state. Moreover, he offers a justification of the state which starts from the proposition that individuals have rights. There are things that no one can do to individuals without violating those rights. He started by the suggestion that we should be respectful of individual rights. By implication, throughout his work, he talks about the importance of respecting individuals' rights not only to their own bodily integrity, but also their rights to protect and preserve their own property. So it immediately looks as if, again, it's a kind of conservative doctrine that's trying to say something about why it is that we need institutions that will allow people to keep what they have, even if they're very rich, perhaps especially if they're very rich. It's a theory which says, in effect, no matter how badly off some other people may be, there is no justification for taking anything from anyone to help the worst off, to help the needy, to help the poor. Uh, so it looks very much like a doctrine um, about the importance of protecting the rich against the poor. Someone once said to me not so long ago, heard that I was a libertarian, he said, why do you hate poor people? That's the attitude that prevails about libertarianism and libertarian doctrine. I don't think it's what libertarians say, I don't think it's what they think, but uh, for a group that believes in, in the free market, they really are not very good at marketing this idea because <laughs> no one really with a heart or a soul is going to be remotely sympathetic to a doctrine like this. Uh, but that's, that, that's how it comes across. Of course, if you read Nosey carefully, you'll, you'll come to an understanding that you know, this is not what he's saying, but he doesn't tell you very much to give you uh, any different an impression. Even more so, of course, if you look to the writings of Ayn Rand, who presents a view she doesn't characterize as libertarian, like she repudiates the, the label libertarian, but nonetheless, what she offers you is a view about the morality of capitalism that rests on an assertion of the primacy of the individual, and she presents her foundations essentially as a form of egoism. Once again, um, I think if you look more carefully, you'll see that there is a subtlety to Rand's views, although I don't myself subscribe to them, but as a matter of marketing, it's certainly a failure um, as far as the general public is concerned. It's only going to uh, reach a very, very particular kind of group of people. And again, I don't want to just poke fun at Rand's ideas. I think there are interesting things that she's got to say, but it's not where I want to start because I think there's something that's ultimately unpersuasive about this view to the vast majority of people. And also I think it's, something, it's a view that's missed something, something, missed something very, very important about what libertarianism has to say. I don't want to exaggerate this because again, I think if you read Rand more closely, you will find interesting things there. And some of the things I'm trying to say, I think she has already anticipated. 
The third person I might just mention, uh, at least in passing, is uh, the philosopher John Tomasi. Some of you may have read his recent book, Free Market Fairness, which offers an attempt to reconcile libertarianism with more standard liberal views, particularly the views of John Rawls. And, and this is a view that has now um, become quite prominent in the recent literature on libertarianism and on liberalism more generally. Because here is someone who's come along and said, well, actually, you know, libertarians aren't all that bad. They're really quite nice. Uh, they do care about the poor. They do care about the starving. They do care about social institutions. Uh, they do care about democracy. Um, please let us in. Okay. Um, I'm not so um, sympathetic to the final argument that John Tomasi wants to make, in part because I think it's a little bit too apologetic. I don't want to write a whole book telling everyone how nice I am, although I'm very nice. Um, I don't want to write a whole book telling people about how nice libertarians are. Some of them are quite nice. Um, but more important than that, I mean, I'm making a bit of fun of John, but he's a good friend of mine. More important than that, I think the view that he presents is really a, a not very radical view at all. I think it, what it misses in trying to make accommodations with a more common view of liberalism in academia is he really suppresses, perhaps he shows a complete lack of awareness of the more radical side of libertarianism. So that's what I want, want to get at. So I'm not going to try to offer you at the start, at least, a complete theory of libertarianism, or even a sketchy theory of libertarianism. But I hope that by the end of the talk, and perhaps at the end of the Q&A, you'll have a better sense of what it is that I have in mind when I talk about libertarianism. Um, so let me, before I turn to doing this, uh, say a little bit about something that's fundamental to libertarianism, uh, and that's property. Property really is an idea that lies at the heart of libertarianism, and it's what many people perceive as the libertarian obsession with property that makes people unsympathetic to it, because they think property is something that is protected in order to serve the interests of the well-to-do or the powerful. After all, critics of libertarianism, especially if they go, come further from the left, are generally more suspicious of and perhaps completely hostile to the idea of property, especially private property. So let me say something about um, libertarianism and, and property. Um, libertarianism today generally takes its cues from, from John Locke. They take it from Locke, partly because Locke is not only an advocate of individual rights, but it's one of the first uh, modern writers in the liberal tradition to talk seriously about property. And what he offers there is an account of the role of the state as an institution that's there to protect private property. And libertarians generally, while they may be suspicious of the state, think that if there's any role for the state, then it is as the protector, if not the guarantor, of private property. <coughs> Implicit in this is a certain kind of understanding of the nature of property. In Locke's case, it's an account of the nature of property, which <coughs> sees it as a kind of claim that people have on parts of the world, on the world's resources, that allows them 
to exclude others. This is what private property is. There may be different kinds of rules or norms of property, but this is what property enables you to do. Libertarianism is generally presented as a kind of view which justifies this institution, this institution that allows us to exclude others from the use of parts of the world that we have exclusive claim to. Now, to the extent that libertarians do think that there's a role for the state, they think that the state is there to protect property. They also therefore think that the state's role is not a role that involves any kind of redistribution of property. If there's anything that libertarians are hostile to, it's redistribution. That's no part of the role of the state. Okay? The states are there to protect individual rights. Um, a large part of this means protecting property rights. It does not mean uh, engaging in any kind of redistribution in order to um, shift claims to property from one person to another or one group of persons to another. Okay. This is what libertarians say. So this is the standard kind of view of libertarianism that people have in mind, based to some extent in reality, that what libertarianism is about is protecting individual rights and especially protecting rights to private property. Now there is a kind of basic problem with this view and that is that uh, all property claims as they exist today are of dubious provenance. We just have to recognize that if we look at the history of property and the way it's, it's been acquired, uh, all kinds of property in the world is distributed uh, in not just a very lopsided way, but as the result of forms of acquisition that are highly questionable to say the least. Everyone recognizes that the history of human society is full of theft, murder, cheating, stealing, um, exploitation, the destruction of peoples across the world through colonial expansion, um, forcible acquisition, wars. So the history of property is very, very dubious. Even if you don't take something um, as dramatic as warfare or colonialism, but just think about how property claims have emerged in the world, it's pretty clear that a lot of it is as the result of people being well-placed, uh, well-connected, and therefore able to, to make um, gains that they might not otherwise have, have made. This is because, among other things, institutions like the state uh, have conferred monopoly privileges on particular persons in order to um, give them benefits in return for things that they can supply to the state. Okay. If you want to look at it in the most recent sort of period of history, um, just think about what happens at any election. Okay. What happens is that people make campaign contributions to political parties in exchange for favors. And they're corporations, um, people who are well-placed, the benefits they get are benefits uh, in the form of some kind of monopoly privilege that allows them to make a lot of money. Uh, so property is constantly being redistributed in this way and often in ways that are not at all um, sympathetic to the interests of the poorest or the worst off in society, uh, but sympathetic to those who are well placed. Now, if this is the case, to start out by saying, well, what is sacrosanct is private property, 
and what we must never have is any kind of institutions of redistribution um, seems at least unrealistic um, because it takes for granted that we can begin with an assumption that existing holdings are legitimate. Now, few people, I think, would say that all holdings as they stand are legitimate because they're completely pure. And even most libertarians, perhaps even all of them, don't think this way. But the way in which theoretical reflection proceeds is as if this were the case. Okay? And I think we should try to proceed, therefore, from a different starting point. Okay? And this means for me that it's implausible, or at least not terribly helpful, to try to start your ethical reflections by assuming simply that there are individual rights, among these rights are claims to property, and what we need are institutions that just protect these sorts of rights, in particular the right to, um, to hold and keep secure uh, and to exchange your property. I think we need a different kind of starting point if we're going to have a political philosophy that is going to speak um, seriously to the conditions that we are in in the modern world. Okay. So where would we start? Well, I think the place to start is actually with the thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, okay. Uh, who wrote a very famous second discourse on the origins of inequality. Uh, an essay which I think is one of the most brilliant ever written, but libertarians generally loathe with a passion. Okay? Um, now, why would they not like this essay? Well, because it's a critique of private property uh, as something that lies at the foundation of inequality in modern society. Well, why should one take this seriously from a libertarian point of view? Well, the first thing I'd like to point out, of course, is that Rousseau himself was not against private property. In fact, if you read his great treatise, Emile, his treatise on education, in which he recounts how it is he would bring up uh, an individual to be a citizen in a republic, he tells us that the first lesson Emile must be taught is to respect property. Rousseau is not against property. He thinks it's, in fact, fundamental. But in this essay, he offers a very, very powerful critique of property. He says, famously, the first person to um, enclose a piece of ground and say, this is mine, he's the one who started civil society, and he's the one we should blame for all our troubles. Sounds like he's not really in favor of private property. But actually, I think his purpose is a little bit more subtle than that. The point that Rousseau is trying to make is that there's something curious about the laws of property, the laws protecting individual property, which deserve uh, to be uncovered, to be unpacked in some way. Okay. What, what is that? Well, the general point that Rousseau wants to make in the second discourse is that those who are well-to-do have a problem. How are they going to protect their holdings against those who are not so well-off? How are they going to protect their riches against the rest of society? They realize that just by their numbers, they're not going to be able to defend their gains. So what they need to do is establish institutions, rules, laws, such that 
people will be persuaded that they ought to live by them. And these rules, these laws, will be laws which tell people to respect property, to respect um, entitlements, to respect existing systems of distribution. They've got to persuade people that the way things are distributed is actually right. They've got to persuade people that the current distribution of things is in fact something that they should respect. And one way to do it is to try to persuade them that they will all gain from this. But more important than this, you need to reinforce the idea that all of this is right. You've got to persuade them of the rightness of this um, structure. Now, Rousseau is not against property, as I said to you before. So what is he getting at when he says that this is the source of the problem? I think what he's getting at is that the way that law has arisen, the way that these institutions have developed, is such as to give the rich the opportunity not just to acquire property and hold it, but actually to preserve a certain kind of distribution of property which is sustained by these laws. And these laws are not just laws which enable them to preserve what they've got, but also to continue to make gains through the mechanisms that enable them to reap the benefits of various monopoly privileges that they've established. That's what I think he's ultimately worried about. If we simply had rules of property um, in which everyone could um, engage in, in trade, make gains, in which there was, if you like, a kind of uh, imaginary market with no monopoly privileges, uh, perhaps we wouldn't see unequal distributions of income to the degree that we're used to seeing. But in fact, in Rousseau's time, if you look at the way the world was uh, divided up, you do have enormous centers of wealth, uh, aristocrats, industrialists, others who are well-to-do, preserving large amounts of property, even uh, as you know, others toil. And they're making these gains not simply by the, the sweat of their brow or by their genius as innovators. They're making this because they've been able to secure these privileges. It seems to me that this is what Rousseau is attacking. Now, this seems to me to be something actually very important and something that libertarianism should take very seriously because after all, from the libertarian point of view, this is what institutions do. They prevent the distribution of property through one particular sort of mechanism, which is to say, free exchange among people. What libertarians are concerned about is the way in which, in particular, institutions like the state shape and determine the distribution of property. But that's not the way in which the theory has generally been presented uh, when we look at um, libertarian works or when we look at dis discussions of libertarianism. It simply starts with the idea that there's private property and there are individual rights and these should be protected. But this other uh, aspect has been, uh, I think, neglected. The ones who are making the running, at least in political theory on this question, 
are thinkers like Rousseau. But I think even more important is another thinker, that's the one I want to turn to now, and that is Karl Marx. This is the second source of inspiration. Now, much of what Marx has to say, I think, in effect draws a certain amount of inspiration from Rousseau. I think Marx has a very, very similar kind of concern about the way in which distribution has been shaped by structures of authority, structures of power within society. And this is what Marx, as well as anyone has ever done, is able to to analyze to, I think, very, very powerful effect. But Marx has something else that Rousseau does not have, and that is to say he has a critique of the state. Rousseau ultimately looks at this structure that he sees, recognizes that there's a maldistribution of, uh, of wealth, sees that this is making many people unfree, and asks himself, well, how do we recover our freedom? And what he says, particularly in the social contract, is, well, we'll recover this freedom if we see our condition in a certain way, if we understand our membership of a republic in a certain way, and if we have institutions that allow us to express our uh, views and allow us to participate in our own government in a certain sort of way, then we'll be free. But nothing necessary is going to change institutionally as a result of all of this. Rousseau has no great plans for economic redistribution or for that matter, for the overthrowing or even transformation of the most fundamental institution that protects inequality, and that is the state. There's almost nothing to say about this, especially as far as economic arrangements are concerned. Marx is the one who's different. Marx comes along and he says, there's something rotten about this whole structure because it systematically privileges one part of society. Now, whether he's right about that or not, I think he's certainly onto something to the extent that he recognized that there is uh, a maldistribution towards which, to the extent that he recognized that there are privileges being conferred upon certain parts of society. And this is what he tries to analyze. Now, to see the significance of this, one doesn't have to buy into the whole materialist conception of history. Okay? I certainly don't, even though it's a very powerful and interesting story. I don't think you need to buy that. But I think it's important still to try to understand the nature of Marx's critique of the state. And maybe the text to start with, although this is only one uh, possible text, is his uh, examination of the revolutions of 1848 onwards, particularly in his um, pamphlet, uh, The 18th Brumaire of uh, Louis Bonaparte. Okay. Now, what does he do in this particular work? Um, what he's offering here is an account of what happens to the Second Republic of France, which emerges and then is destroyed very, very quickly in a short period of time in the midst of revolutionary upheaval. Now, what happens in this period is that um, when uh, Louis-Philippe, the previous um, um, president, flees as a result of his fear of uh, the rising tide of uh, you know, Parisian um, you know, discontent, 
uh, is that um, Louis Bonaparte comes to the presidency and into the Legislative Assembly come a number of parties led by the Party of Order, uh, all of which contend within the Assembly for control of um, that Assembly itself and ultimately of uh, the institutions of the state. The disorder of, uh, of all of this leads to Louis Bonaparte instituting a coup and taking power. Uh, and at that point, he was able to, because the parties that had been contending within the Legislative Assembly um, insisted that whatever their differences, they were going to suppress any possibility of further more radical uprising on the part of the working classes. They were going to protect their own state interests, or sorry, their, their own particular interests. Okay. When these groups are all dissenting amongst one another and competing, Louis Bonaparte is able to come in, um, dismiss the entire assembly, and ultimately install himself as emperor. What does Marx say about this? He says two things. One is that this revolutionary movement shows the power of these particular classes, okay, the bourgeois classes, to reassert power. Why they're interested in doing this for their own ends and will suppress any kind of further working class activity because they want to protect their interests. But most important, what he says is that even then, what will happen subsequently is that another power will come and trump all of this. Okay? And this is the power that's represented by the coup of Louis Bonaparte. What is it that this coup represents? It actually represents the triumph not of even a particular group within society. It represents the power and the triumph of the state. Now, what does Marx mean by this? Here what he's trying to get at is that the state is itself something in society which comes to have interests of its own. Okay? The state, Marx says here, and he repeats this argument elsewhere, particularly in his critique of Hegel, is that the state is something that exists separate from society. It's an institution that ends up dominating society. The state by this time in the development of France had become an enormous centralized power with interests of its own. It was home to a bureaucratic and military apparatus that was in itself a kind of class and it could operate independent of the will of any particular section of society, even though ultimately it would sustain itself by placating or rewarding particular sections of society. It would still ultimately serve the interests of some class, because otherwise it might end up being um, overthrown as a result of reaction against it. But what it was certainly not was any kind of instrument of the universal class, as Hegel might have put it. It's not the instrument of everyone. It's an instrument of either particular classes or simply of those who turn out to be hangers-on of the state. Okay. Now, Marx says, as a result of this analysis, is this. What he says is, 
there's no point in trying to perfect this instrument or to improve it because it is in the nature of this instrument to serve its own interests and to serve the interests of, in his analysis, particular classes that profit or benefit from this. Now, I think there's a lot to be said for this particular analysis and a lot to be sympathetic towards this analysis for from a libertarian point of view. Not because one has to buy into Marx's historical materialism, although he thinks that his own analysis draws on this, um, but simply because I think it points to a very important insight that's to be found not only in Marx, but I think in some other more obscure um, liberal and libertarian uh, thinkers from uh, you know, earlier decades or even centuries. And that is that there is something very, very troubling about this institution that is the state. It's an institution which does not serve the interests of all, but serve the interests of particular segments of society and ultimately serves the interests of those who are actually employed by the state. As the state grows, it becomes independent because there are more and more people who are directly dependent upon the state for their livelihoods, and for their success, and even for the fulfillment um, of their ambitions. Now, as I said, this is an approach to libertarianism that you typically don't see in political theory because political theorists come at libertarianism typically through someone like Nozick. So it begins with the thought, how do we justify the state? Okay. And then we turn to the question of how much should the state do or what should the state do? Now, once you've started down this path, you've started with a relatively benign view of the state, at which point it seems odd to say, well, we've got this very benign state, but all it should do is just protect um, particular interests, protect property, even if this leads to enormous inequality. That seems almost perverse. But if you come at it from a different perspective, and you come at it from the perspective that says, no, there's actually something fundamentally wrong with this institution because it's not, in fact, an institution that serves the interests of everyone but serves particular interests, then I think you'd start differently in your reflections. You'd start to say not what should we do about perfecting this instrument so that we can effect better and better distributions. You'd start by saying what do we do about this institution, the whole logic of which is not to serve the interests of everyone, but to serve the interests of particular sections of society, and in particular to serve the interests of the most well-to-do sections of society, or those sections of society that are now simply implicated in the operation of the state, that are just a part of the apparatus of the state. Well, that is the basis for libertarianism that I would like to, uh, to advance. Now, I haven't, at this point, therefore got a full theory of libertarianism. What I've got, however, is a sketch of the starting point for uh, a libertarian theory. Um, it would start, in a sense, with what would be a libertarian sociology rather than a libertarian moral theory. Okay. Not because I think there's no point in starting with a moral theory, and there's no place for it, but I think if you want to see what's distinctive and important about libertarianism, you have to begin really with the state, with a critique of the state. And that's, I think, what's missing 
in contemporary political theory analysis um, um, of uh, issues in questions of justice, issues, questions about the nature of liberty, issues that have to do with any of the important questions that political theorists address um, in contemporary academia. So, all of this said, then, where do we go from here? Um, well, one moderate view to take is simply to say, well, okay, what we've got to do um, is to take a kind of moderate view and say, okay, what we've got to do now is to find ways of, uh, of limiting the state. Okay? That would be one set of uh, con conclusions that you might uh, tend toward as conclusion about what is the role of libertarian theory at this, at this point. Libertarianism pushes towards a theory of, of limited government. To some extent, it's, it's still going to try to offer you a theory about how to perfect the state, but at least it's a theory that's trying to say not how to, protect this, how to perfect the state because it is an institution that's capable of doing great good, but rather saying, well, here's an instrument that's capable of doing great harm, that's extremely dangerous, let's think about how we might limit it. And I think the most important thing that libertarians might say here is something is worth doing to try to limit or respect, restrict the capacity of the state to confer monopoly privileges on particular sections of society, whether it's the financial industry, or whether it's in industrial capital, or the military, or any one of a range of uh, sections of society that flourish by making its contribution to uh, the state and to its coffers, more particularly through support for particular parties or particular elements uh, within government. This moderate view may also be one which is disinclined to favor redistribution but not because it's against redistribution as such, but because it's going to be skeptical about redistribution through the state. Not because states can never affect redistribution that sends money to the poorest sections of the community, but simply because redistribution through the state generally, on this theory of the state, will be redistribution uh, in favor of the well-to-do or the well-connected. The, the poorest may get something but if you believe in trickle-down uh, politics, maybe you'll be sympathetic to this. But if you're more skeptical about that, then perhaps, um, perhaps less so. But I think more generally, the whole point here in trying to develop a libertarian perspective is to try to take a more skeptical look at the state. To not see it, I think, in the way in which most contemporary liberals see the state. Most contemporary liberals, I think, see the state as the engine of opportunity, an opportunity to improve society by bringing um, the interests of all into consideration and serving the interests, ultimately, of everyone. If you think about the state in the way Marx does, and if you think about it in the way I think libertarian sociology does, you'll be much more skeptical about this. Now, of course, there is one alternative to the libertarian view, which we ought to mention, because this is, of course, the view that Marx favored, which is socialism. Okay, if you've got the skeptical view about uh, the state, why not socialism, to, to 
coin a phrase um, used by someone who used to work here. Um, well, I think there are really two alternatives here, and I'm going to say something about why I think we should reject um, both of them, or only half of the second one, but we should reject both of them. One of them is to uh, go for Marxian socialism, which is, of course, the form of socialism that Marx preferred. This is what he anticipated would come about, and it's also what he favored. Now, Marxian socialism, I take it to be a kind of post-state socialism. So it's built on a rejection of the state as the kind of instrument that um, Marx was critical of. But on the other hand, I think it has um, a very implausible uh, social and economic theory lying behind it. And that is to say, it's a theory that rests on the idea that uh, after you've abolished uh, private property uh, and essentially market relations, what you'll have is economic production through some system of central planning which will create wealth that could then be redistributed or just distributed more equitably. Um, leaving aside some of the technical problems with the argument here, we'd have to go into Marx's theory of exploitation, for example. Um, leaving that aside, I think just in very, very general terms, the problem with this is that economically it's proved to be a failure, and I think it can also be demonstrated to be unworkable simply from a theoretical point of view. Here, the writings of F.A. Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, I think, were pretty decisive. And I think most analytical Marxists today, um, and perhaps many other Marxists, simply accept the power of that critique. Okay. Socialist economics of the Marxian kind just are not sustainable. You can't have um, economic production at the kind of level that Marx wanted uh, without markets. Um, and there's a further disadvantage of this form of central planning, and this is a disadvantage that um, the Russian anarchist Mikhail Bakunin pointed out to Marx, I think, in the Second International, and that is that if you have this kind of an economic structure um, guided by central planning, uh, what you'll get ultimately is um, authoritarian rule and um, all the kinds of abuses of power that uh, go with it. Uh, Marx, of course, thought that Bakunin was wrong about this. I think Bakunin had the better of the argument historically, if you look at the way in which Marxian socialism developed in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union, in China, in various places. Though we can argue about to what extent this is the consequence of Marxist theory and to what extent is the consequences of circumstances in those society. But in any case, History has not been kind to the model of uh, Marxian socialism. But what about non-Marxian socialism? Okay, I think there are two alternatives here. Okay. One would be what I would describe simply as, as anarchist socialism. That is to say, a form of socialism um, that dispenses with any kind of uh, political authority. And there are there's a long tradition of, uh, of anarchist socialism. I'm not going to say very much about this here except to say that actually in general I'm quite sympathetic to this. You know, to the extent that people do want to organize um, without authority and live according to institutions which don't emphasize property, which don't emphasize um, inequality, 
which allow for the possibility of uh, a more equitable distribution amongst uh, people, I'm all for it. There's no uh, attempt to establish uh, these sorts of institutions by coercive force. Um, I don't see why you couldn't have anarchist socialism, though, even though I think it's actually very unlikely. Uh, so that's one form of non-Marxian socialism. The other form of non-Marxian socialism would be essentially, I think, state socialism. Okay. It might be inspired by different sorts of socialist traditions, whether it's the English ethical socialism arose here in the 1950s or other forms of, uh, of socialism. The problem with this, I think, is that state socialism still means having a powerful state. And if you take the Marxist critique of the state seriously, then it will be in the nature of the state not, in fact, to serve the interests of everyone, but to serve the interests of particular sections of the society. And I don't see any reason why state socialism would be any different. There will be different degrees to which this happens. You may get state socialism that ranges in character from what you find in Norway and Sweden to what you find um, well, in Cuba or in North Korea, although those are very weird examples, uh, or it may be the kind of socialism that you find in, in Britain. Um, but my concern is that this sort of socialism ultimately will still be dependent upon the state, and what you'll see is therefore distribution um, in accordance with the interests of the state itself or the interests of those who benefit from the state. So to try to bring these remarks to a close, and you can see that I've not presented you with a specific theory of libertarianism, I haven't given you any first principles, really given you an account of what the, what the starting point is. Um, the view I want to present to you generally is a view that says there is something to be said for libertarianism, uh, but to see how we think about this, we've got to take a very different starting point than libertarians have um, in political theory in particular in general. We've got to start not with simply an assertion of individual rights. We've got to start with a critique of existing institutions. And I think take seriously some of the insights that we can find in other critics of the state, in theorists uh, like Marx. But if we go from there, I suspect we'll also get a very different sort of libertarianism than what we've found in many of the works that are criticized by uh, liberals and liberal democrats writing political theory today. I'll leave it there. Or oh, praise is okay as well. Yeah. <laughs> praise, great presentation. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so you've, you've given this story that my understanding of the literature doesn't seem to be such a new, doesn't mean new and great, but rather tone or focused emphasis on the this interest of the state versus civil society. But were the anarcho capitalists on the right always saying this to the libertarians? Isn't this? Isn't part of what knows it tries to do in the state utopia trying to respond to the anarcho capitalists? Here's why it's just about this. What if, what is it, how is this in your model, how is it gonna for future approach, how is it gonna be different from what you have always had to say to the anarchist right? 
uh, sorry, how is this different from? So you're saying here you have this, the state has its own interest. We have to have an emphasis on co-option members being different from civil society. Well, but the anarchists are probably rock parties or other things. Say, well, we don't. I don't need Marx or Rousseau to tell me this. I, I was always saying this to you, libertarians. So how is it any different what you need to say to the, the anarchist right? Um, well, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to um, that anarchist right. Um, what I'm less persuaded by in their theorizing is the, uh, is the political theory that they advance, which is still one which begins with some kind of notion of, uh, of individual rights and starts with um, uh, the notion that um, not only individuals have rights over their, their own bodies, and they typically start with a, um, a view about self-ownership, but then also want to extrapolate from this um, a claim to ownership of parts of the world. And I think what I find troubling about this approach is that it thinks about um, the relationship between individuals and parts of the world um, as given by some kind of metaphysical view about how it is that claims are established. I think what's um, to be found better in, um, in accounts by people like Rousseau and Marx about that relationship is that it's actually a much more politically um, and socially constructed relationship. Property is not something that we establish just by uh, our interaction with the world. Property is something that's established as a result of interaction between people. Um, and property there is also not simply a kind of uh, relationship that is established such that you know, everyone has um, relatively straightforward fee simple claims of property. Property relations are much more varied and complex such that you know, it may involve um, direct ownership with rights of exclusion or it may involve much more elaborate structures such that you know, the non-possessory rights of others are recognized or the rights of people to use property is recognized. All of these sorts of arrangements can come about. Um, I think starting the way that many of them do, um, the anarcho-capitalists, they, they don't recognize that element of, uh, or don't emphasize enough, that element of the nature of, uh, um, of property. To the extent that they offer a critique of the state, I think that they have got a lot of very, very powerful arguments. Um, but I think what's then um, not emphasized enough, and I think this is where you know, I, I'm inclined to take more inspiration from Rousseau and Marx, is then not as much inclined to emphasize the extent to which the, um, the distributions that have come about are the result of you know, monopoly privileges that have been conferred upon people by the workings of the state and by the, their relationship to the state. Again, I don't want to exaggerate this because I think many of them have recognized this. There's a lot of libertarian sociology, even in the you know, writings of Murray Rothbard, which are very extensive, that pick up all of this. But when it comes to the argument of political theory, a lot of this simply gets bypassed. And certainly in critiques of libertarianism, none of this is really um, coming to the fore. If you read critics of libertarianism, they're really critics of Nozick and they're critics of the idea that individuals have rights and rights over their own property. Uh, yeah. Sorry, oh. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Um, I want to finish you a little bit on the future of the 
I want to push a little bit on that sort of tradition of socialism, because it's also true along the the anarchist socialist camp, but there are others who don't quite fit into either the anarchist or the state socialist camp, so you're identified as being non-Marxian socialist, or and also not Marxian socialist. So if I'm thinking of the kind of guild socialists, for example, the English tradition, so the Pendy, the Vigil, the Lasky, so those as well, and how do you think they might be compatible with the feminism? Okay. Um, I have a certain amount of sympathy for them, even though I also think that um, there are serious problems with many of those sorts of institutions that, um, um, that the Guild Socialists defend. I'd be happiest with them if they weren't the only sorts of institutions that were possible, because the free interaction of, uh, of people means that those who want to live in, in those sorts of communities under those sorts of institutions could, could do so, but there was free movement between different sorts of traditions. I think they would crop up, but they would have some uh, weaknesses. One is that because they're um, institutions that um, are very internally closed um, in order to protect their own particular interests, I think um, they're not going to be as economically productive and also they're going to be much more um, uh, controlling of their own members. Uh, but you know, in principle, if you have a, um, a social structure which you know, makes it possible for those to enter those sorts of arrangements, for example, you know, um, they could enter um, the equivalent of um, worker cooperatives, I think that would be fine. Um, but um, uh, what you would see over time is the extent to which people actually wanted to be in these sorts of communities. And I think you would always get some, but I think if what you look to is to enforce um, a way of living in which everyone had to live in these sorts of uh, collectives or cooperatives, then I think that would be more troubling because I think you'll get the same kinds of problems that lead to the development of state institutions to protect particular privileges and particular interests. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to thank you very much again for an excellent talk. Um, so I have two points and I'd like to hear a reaction first point is that I agree with you strongly about the uh, uh, libertarian core ability to market their ideas effectively in the marketplace of ideas, far less effectively than those on the left. Anyway. And I would argue that many on the left, but not all, uh, are in fact less in favour of helping the poor, even in the near term, than are libertarians. For example, unions and their advocates are usually and almost always vehemently opposed to uh, eliminating restrictions on immigration for reasons that uh, selfish reasons. Whereas libertarians are generally quite open to that, um, the possibility of eliminating those laws. To the extent, one, that it uh, uh, enhances people's freedom and secondly will help those poor people who would like to come here from less developed countries and, and to their own end. That's my first comment. My second comment is in the same vein as the one raised over here. In particular, isn't the isn't the uh, what you call libertarian sociology really public choice economics in the tradition of the Chicago School and the Virginia University of Virginia School? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, on the first question, I'd be very brief. Um, I don't want to get into a contest about who's nicer. Um, you know, I know I'm nice. I know nice people on 
all sides of the, uh, the political spectrum, leaving aside some fascists. But, um, um, but I, I don't think that's you know, um, going to get us uh, very far. I'd rather just talk about the, um, uh, the issues. On the libertarian sociology, um, I think um, it's not just a matter of public choice and the Virginia School. I mean, that's you know, one kind of, uh, of contribution. Um, comes from a very particular tradition. I think it goes back much, much further into, uh, into history. And it's to be found in the writings of not just economists or even political economists, but also of sociologists of, uh, of all kinds. Maybe if using this, the term slightly anachronistically, um, the work of historians. Um, and I think in, in the writings of Marx, uh, for example, I, I don't think it makes sense to say that, well, Marx was just another kind of public choice theorist, um, that I think would be misrepresenting both public choice and, and Marx. So I, I don't see any need to, to tie it to this particular tradition. I, mean, you know, I think public choice has a lot to teach us. It's not the whole of, uh, of libertarian sociology, though. Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, there are many of the thinkers of the sort that you that you mentioned who have uh, who have a lot to offer um, because they, they not only have uh, have moral arguments but they have uh, a sociological analysis to offer, and much of it is about the way in which interests dominate in society and protect themselves by uh, allying themselves with you know, powerful political figures or powerful institutions within the structure of the state. And many of them also ultimately offer an account of how it is that these people might even become themselves supplicants of the state who then protect their own interests by protecting the, the interests of the state. Um, I think you can extend that analysis to you know, modern state institutions. I mean, we now live in societies, many of us in the developed West, where an awful lot of uh, um, economic activity takes place through the state. So the state has an enormous uh, number of employees who now have a very, very strong interest in preserving the institution of the state. Now, this isn't to say that they're all unproductive um, you know, scroungers. That's not, that's not my point. The point is that um, when it comes to um, the way in which 
political decisions are made about questions not just of distribution, but of um, the kinds of institutions that you would have, whether they're to protect the poor or to make things more efficient or to build, you know, build public works. Um, what ends up being a very, very powerful consideration is not the worth of the enterprise itself, but the people who are employed in it. To give you just one example, think about the American prison system, which is much discussed. One of the big issues you've got to think about if you're, an, if you're a legislator is you know, not how you reduce crime, uh, not how you uh, save money, uh, not how you make society more uh, safe more generally, but how you deal with the large prison guard union um, because they have a very, very powerful interest in building more prisons. And this is just one example, but there are you know, numerous cases like this that you could uh, you know, repeat endlessly. Um, and here you, know, you can see policies being made not in the interests of the public, not in the interests of Hegel's universal class, it's made in the interests of a particular section of society that's actually a part of the apparatus of the state. And it doesn't get much better if you privatize the presence to the extent that this is a structure than then um, has got its own um, um, attachment um, to the state, which is supplying the um, well, both the money and the residents to you know preserve this sort of institution. So this is the sort of thing I think that you know I would uh, uh, try to emphasise, you know, drawing on some of these other uh, traditions, but making the point that. Um, you know, all of this is going to make much more sense if you see it as a part of a general critique of the state rather than if you try to pursue it by starting from some sort of notion of individual rights. Uh, thanks. Um, so listening to your talk, I was uh, imagining someone making a similar kind of complaint about ignoring the state um, against someone like Rawls. Uh, and it seems to me that the Rawls response, this theory of Rawls response, is probably well, okay, well, you've misunderstood what I'm doing. Right? I'm doing ideal theory. What you're talking about is not ideal theory. You're talking about situations in which um, the employees of the state are not perfectly just agents of the, the citizens. Uh, so I was wondering if libertarians of Lindsay and Bent might have a similar response to your retreat at I think what you're doing is interesting and it's, um, I think, entirely complementary to what I'm doing. But I'm doing, I want to work out, well, under uh, ideal conditions, what um, justice um, demands from this libertarian. Start from this position where people have rights and follows, which I think could say they, they would say is true and therefore what uh, follows. And then I wasn't sure whether you think you'd become sympathetic to that, to that kind of um, detente or whether um, you actually want to make a kind of more fundamental critique and the libertarians, the libertarians are, are wrong about their starting point and so you need an ideal theory that they're well, a part of it is that I am just um, less sympathetic to, to ideal theory. Not, I don't want to say that there's no place for it um, whatsoever. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's, there are all kinds of ways of you know, trying to get insight and to understand the world. But I think in political theory in particular, there's something very unsatisfying about ideal theory when it leads us to really just... Um, prescind so much from the nature of political reality that you wonder how much it's really a political theory as, just, as opposed to just you know, um, an attempt to 
gain some sort of conceptual clarity when you're trying to understand notions like justice, freedom. Um, I mean, I think all of that is worthwhile, but um, it seems to me that when you do ideal theory at a certain point, um, you lose any kind of grip or any kind of purchase on, uh, on the real world. So any pronouncement that you might then make um, become, um, I would just say, odd. I mean, so for example, let's say you constructed an ideal theory, whether from a libertarian or from a, um, you know, a Rawlsian liberal perspective, and you then turned to um, making an argument about the implementation of whatever it is, this, the set of principles that you want. Uh, what happens then? Okay, now, I know that the, the standard move is to say, okay, well, now we're in the realm of, um, um, of non-ideal or partial compliance uh, theory. But um, if that's the case, um, what is the um, ideal theory... What, what is the end that ideal theory is serving? If it's the case that when you move into the real world, the conditions are so um, dramatically different that you will have to you know, put those principles aside or rethink completely. Now, I think if um, the gap between ideal theory and the real world is very, very minimal, then perhaps so. But I guess what I want to suggest is here, um, the way we should think about the state suggests that it's not plausible to think that we can just come up with ideal theory and now then just talk about implementation. Because the very instrument that, say, for example, Rawlsians want to, to talk about uh, as an agent of redistribution is just nothing like the, um, the instrument that the Rawlsians think about. So just to give you a, a more concrete way of thinking about this, uh, I think in the second part of a theory of justice, Rawls does talk quite explicitly about institutions. And if you read that section, a large part of what he does is he talks about the way in which um, economic institutions would work, how you would have you know, institutions that would you know, um, deal with issues of saving, deals with issues of economic stability, and so on. It's all written as if um, the state were a kind of, uh, of neutral instrument. Now, no, he was a very smart guy. I'm sure if you pressed him, he would have recognized all of the things that I've uh, pointed out. My view is that liberals like Rawls and, and others um, underestimate the significance of the kind of critique that we get from thinkers like Marx. So you know, the gap between ideal theory and non-ideal or partial compliance theory is too great for us to make too much uh, work out of uh, ideal theory. That's my general view. Um, yeah, so I think you've kind of made a very interesting articulation kind of the way we kind of might integrate kind of libertarianism with other sort of traditionally sort of left-wing critiques of economic power. So the idea that in present society there are certain kind of distributions of income or that we might consider unjust and we would want to move away from in an ideal society. Um, the other kind of strong kind of current in the history of Western politics is of course kind of cultural inequality or the idea that there are certain kind of dominant cultural groups in society that may oppress kind of minorities, so say racial minorities or women or other things. Do you think there's any scope for a kind of similar sort of integration of these kind of sort of 
left-wing concerns with libertarianism easily in the sense of the way the state may um, uh, privilege kind of dominant cultural groups or the way that kind of uh, the cultural dominance make dominance and kind of authority in society more generally may um, help the state in kind of the relations it depends upon. Um, I think it would be odd if it weren't the case. Okay, it would be odd if the state simply um, were an agent that was um, shaped by, say, particular powerful economic interests, but not by powerful cultural interests, particularly cultural interests perhaps that have a certain amount of economic clout. And I think if one looks at the workings of public policy, for example, if one is looking at the workings of of multiculturalism, you can see this very, very clearly um, to the extent that, uh, say, powerful ethnic lobbies in different countries, whether the United States or Canada or Australia, uh, are able to exert a certain sort of influence. And, you know, and other ethnic lobbies can't because they're just not so powerful. They may be a smaller minority. So, yeah, I think the, the state clearly has um, um, a tendency to be, to be dominated by particular cultural groups, particular cultural um, elites. To some extent, of course, there's also a competition amongst all of these. So, you know, it's hard to see how exactly things will fall out. I don't want to suggest that everything is just going to be a matter of um, the relationship amongst com competing interests with the most powerful ones always winning out. The state itself has to pay off many different sorts of groups if it wants to uh, sustain itself. Um, the dominant powers within uh, the apparatus of the state will be beholden to lots of different uh, groups in society. Um, but on the whole, I, I think I agree with the, you know, the, the point that you're making. Um, so one thing that libertarians, and I think for that matter anyone, uh, have to think about is how to address um, this, sort of, uh, um, this sort of fact about the world, um, because there are economic powers at work, there are also cultural powers at work. Um, the solution that I think libertarians are least sympathetic to is the idea that you deal with this by um, having the state resolve this problem because the thesis is, well, the state is the instrument through which these, these interests operate. There is one other theory which I guess I should just mention for the sake of uh, being fair to you know, um, all the arguments out there. Uh, and this is the idea that um, we can try to solve this problem through um, democratization in some way. If we extend not just the franchise, but extend the institutions of democracy through uh, society, we'll be able to uh, negate the power of uh, particular interests or particular cultural forces. Uh, and, and I haven't got a, uh, the time here to give you a full critique, but in the end, it seems to me that this um, is, is not a plausible um, way to go because democratic mechanisms themselves are prone to capture by particular interests. So I don't see mechanisms of democratization um, ultimately resolving the problem. They may be important to the extent that they may give us you know, some mechanism for, for limiting the operation of the state, at least to some degree, but they also have, you know, lots of particular weaknesses. The example that I gave you of the American prison system, for example, is a, is a case in point. I mean, um, it's through the democratic process that certain sorts of uh, groups can become really quite powerful and, and influential. Just to follow up, just 
right? Yeah. Um, so it seems like that's sort of an electoral democracy. Uh, the more radical forms of democracy might not be prone to capture in quite the same way. And if you, so if you, if, if the problem is the creation of a class of people who are occupied, entrenched in particular roles in a particular, uh, staying in those roles over a long period of time, that they have an interest in um, directing state resources towards them and sort of snatching those roles. Um, then one solution seems to be just keep people from occupying those roles on any kind of long-term basis, just have people come in and occupy those roles for a while, take their turn, and move out. Yeah, um, I think I think you're right in the sense that. Um, there are many sorts of mechanisms that one could imagine for democratization besides just electoral uh, competition. And you know, current democratic institutions recognize this because not only are there different electoral systems, but there are different kinds of offices that are chosen in different ways. Um, I can point you to one very interesting book about this uh, by a guy called John Bernheim, written about 20 years ago, called Is Democracy Possible? And what he argues for is a form of democracy which dispenses with elections almost altogether, and you have uh, the choosing of, uh, of officers by lot uh, in the way it was in, the, in ancient Greece with respect to some officers, not all uh, officers. And the idea is here that you would take um, um, uh, the, the practice of, uh, of the selection of ruling out of the hands of um, the demos in a way that made it corruptible through um, electoral bargaining and um, by you know, people essentially buying votes directly or indirectly. Other questions? That's, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't think that I'm falling victim to this, mainly because um, um, I'm not starting with Hobbes. I'm not starting with this kind of view of, uh, of human nature. I'm starting with the view that um, is advanced by Marx, who doesn't start off by saying, look, this is what the nature of man is, and so this is, or, you know, man with a small m, um, uh, but rather you know, this is the way in which um, the, the workings of certain sorts of institutions of power should be understood. Um, and now, of course, what Marx is trying to do is to find some way of, of getting beyond that. Uh, now, I think his assumption is if you can get past this stage, what you'll see emerging is um, a different kind of human being as well as um, a different set of institutions. Okay, what you'll get is people um, becoming more um, 
cooperative in a way. Um, I'm actually quite sympathetic to that. Um, there's a recent book that I like a lot by um, James Scott, the um, anthropologist at Yale, called uh, Two Cheers for Anarchism. And one of the points he makes, uh, and he takes uh, Hobbes as his stalking horse right now, is that um, one of the things that happens as a result of the emergence of a large and extensive state, which then organizes social life and um, not only um, you know, commandeers resources, but then also uh, organizes all kinds of forms of social cooperation across the society, is that what gets uh, lost is local understanding of how to cooperate, because people now are operating within such large structures of impersonal rules that the need to, um, to develop and evolve systems of cooperation themselves becomes diminished. In fact, he says um, in this particular book, in a way what Leviathan does is it creates the kind of creatures that it's supposed to solve um, the problems of. Um, it's not that human beings are naturally uncooperative, which is what Hobbes in a way suggests, um, but Leviathan begins by assuming this and as a result creates those sorts of persons. Um, I'm very sympathetic to this view. Now, I don't want to you know, turn into a 1960s hippie and say we would all love each other and everything would be beautiful if we just got rid of the state. That's not the, the point. But it is to suggest that we don't need to go to the other extreme and say, look, we're all just naturally brutal. Um, I don't think that's true either. I think that would be an exaggeration. You know, there may be some reason sometimes for you know, making very, very parsimonious assumptions about, um, um, about human sociability. But on the whole, I think if you start with that sort of a view, you get a misleading uh, understanding of, uh, of human society.